0: You're listening to The Horror. Welcome to The Horror. Hi, I'm Owen Edgerton. I really like horror movies. And I'm Russell Sharman,
1: and usually, uh, I don't really like them is the thing. But you're learning to like them though. Am I? Am I Am I learning? To like- it's one of those things. It's like the karate kid, you know? He didn't he didn't realize he was learning karate. He just thought he was waxing cars. I will
0: say so far it's felt like I'm painting a lot of fences.
1: Yep. For no yep, reason. yep. But when it when you when you get picked on by those bullies, you're gonna be able to
0: <laughs> rip out their carotid artery, <laughs> apparently, in some grotesque fashion.
1: You're gonna roadhouse them.
0: <laughs> Wait, did you say roadhouse them? Yes. <laughs> Which is its own kind of horror movie.
1: <laughs> well Patrick Swayze, he rips out a guy's throat. It's an amazing moment.
0: <laughs> uh well. Uh, today uh, we are we are discussing uh, a film, which yes. I can confidently call a film, uh, and that is Stanley Kubrick's *The Shining*.
1: Stanley Kubrick's Stephen King's *The Shining*. <laughs> yes.
0: Would Stephen King a- agree with that? No,
1: no, he right? wouldn't. But of course, based on the 1977 novel *The Shining*, Kubrick's film, yes. A lot of history. I imagine most of our listeners, this is one of the ones, this is not
0: Basket Case.
1: Most people know about this film.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, this is one that, uh, unlike Basket Case, uh, I yeah. I had seen. I think most oh, yeah. people probably, even people like me who say they don't like horror, uh, have probably seen this. Yes,
1: one. yes. I got a chance to actually this 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 week to watch two uh, films based on Stephen King. I watched The Shining, and, and uh, can you guess what the other one was?
0: uh it no maximum overdrive oh the, uh, I have fond memories of that one
1: yeah yeah it's uh, it's a lot of fun uh as a friend of mine described it it's like it's not a good movie but it's it's worth every sense of entertainment dollar that you put into it I think
0: you just described every movie with emilio Estevez as the headline <laughs>
1: Let's just say Stephen King, uh, in that particular one, um, not only as a screenwriter did he provide a lot of lines, but he also did a lot of lines <laughs> as a director.
0: <laughs> I, just, I just remember ACDC uh, is like the they scored the film.
1: They scored the entire
0: film. It's all ACDC. And if I'm not mistaken, not that I am the expert here, but King actually really likes Maximum Overdrive, not such a fan of The Shining.
1: Well, I, I think... He, he's he's mocked Maximum Overdrive a couple of times, but, you know, he did a trailer. The funny thing is, the reason I was sort of bringing it up is there's this old trailer for Maximum Overdrive when it was originally playing in theaters, and it's a younger Stephen King, and he's staring into the camera, his eyes looking fierce, and he's got this sort of manic grin on his face, and he's, he's saying, he's like, I made this movie Maximum Overdrive. It's time someone did King Right. Uh, and he, he keeps saying things like, I've, uh, there's lots of different versions of uh, films based on my stories, but if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And he, he's kind of clearly, it feels like, attacking Kubrick. <laughs> and, like, Kubrick did The Shining, but then I got in there and did it right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: By which he's referring to maximum <laughs> maximum
1: overdrive. <laughs> overdrive. And of course, later on he did the mini series, The Shining, as well. But yeah, he he referred to the Shining movie as um, a beautiful uh, Cadillac with no motor.
0: Interesting. So yeah. I knew I knew he was not a fan. I don't know the details exactly, except and and this is probably will be the substance of our conversation. Uh, except that it seems to me part of his misgivings with Kubrick's adaptation is that it was not a, a, a genre movie enough. That it was not a horror movie, per se. <laughs> uh, you're,
1: you're, you're saying because it's good, it's not a horror movie? Now, now I'm just quoting King. No, King you know. didn't say that.
0: <laughs> you're saying
1: you think King should say that.
0: Well, I will say, you know, when we first started this adventure in bad movie making Uh, part of my part of my contention and and i freely admit there is a kind of uh illogic to this uh it's not really fair Uh, but when i think of of the movies that i love and and the shining is probably among those um i do tend to make this excuse like well it's not really i mean it's not really a horror movie Mm. And I realize that's not a, a very fair, like only when it suits me, does it fit. But I, and, and as creepy as this movie is, I don't know. I do, I, after watching it again, I am left with this feeling of, and I get this from a lot of Kubrick's movies, that he shares a certain sensibility with some of my favorite filmmakers like Tarkovsky and Hanukkah, uh, this kind of the cinema of patience. And uh, yeah, there's a creepiness to it but on the heels of Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, it's hard for me to make the case that they're in the same universe.
1: Uh, okay. Well, first of all, t- tell me a little bit more about that—that uh, that, the theater of a cinema of patience. I love that expression.
0: Well, I, there's a, you know, so I teach I teach film at the University of Arkansas, and this is not in any way to impugn Arkansas. It's probably true of any freshman intro to film course in any part of the country. It, most, most kids today, this is where I sound like the old man, uh, get off my <laughs> yeah. lawn, uh, you, you know, uh, have now been raised on, on YouTube and, and TikTok and buy a really sound, really sound old. Uh,
1: <laughs> Faces <books>. and, uh,
0: <laughs> and they don't necessarily have the patience for, uh, you know, a movie that clocks in at 90 minutes, much less one, you know, at two plus hours, unless it's a Marvel movie, but I don't just mean length, I mean a certain tone, a certain spirit of film that you find in someone like Andre Tarkovsky mm-hmm. and a movie like Stalker or the original Solaris, mm-hmm. That a film that rewards patience, that rewards an almost meditative, transcendental approach to consuming film. It's something I think uh, that Paul Schrader... Mm-hmm he both wrote about in a great book about transcendentalism and filmmaking. Yeah, I couldn't uh, I couldn't
1: get through that. Course. Just what took too long to get going.
0: <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like Kubrick shares that sensibility. So I feel like The Shining uh, upon rewatching, it's a really slow movie, yeah. but I don't mean that as a criticism.
1: No, no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh well, I mean it's kind of interesting. Uh like so I I love The Shining. I, I really like the book, too. I think Stephen King's book is fantastic. I'm actually reading the sequel right now, Doctor Sleep, which is all about Danny as an
0: adult. Which apparently is now a film. Yes,
1: Mike Flanagan, who uh, he's he's done a, um, he, you know, he, I think his most famous work is a, the Haunting of Hill House show on, um, on Netflix, but he also did an adaptation of Gerald's game, Stephen King's Gerald's game. I, I think he, he's an incredibly talented guy. Um, I, I feel really confident. This is going to be kind of beautiful, uh, movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think there's something there of, of what you're saying. And, and the, the, the fact that, uh, the Shining does take its time. And The Shining has just got an uncanny creepiness throughout. You know, I, it, I start out watching that film and I'm immediately in, in the helicopter shots, which, you know, Kubrick wasn't even there for. But I'm already, I'm just, I'm there in this in this sort of terrifying space. I, I just love that. And it just sort of continues the whole time. And I actually don't quite know why uh, the shining is one of those movies and like, why am I so creeped out when they're having the tour of the overlook hotel? And, and, and basically there's a lot of like, yeah, well, you know, it was Indian burial grounds and oh, we don't have much skiing. There's a lot of like boring conversation here and I'm terrified and I don't know why It it's pretty brilliant in that way.
0: Yeah. Well, it's definitely, and this is something I think, I think back on when we had uh, Brett doctor, Brett Sherman mm-hmm. philosopher, at large mm-hmm. on our show, you know, he, he described, you know, the horror genre less about being scared and more about being unsettled. Yes. I don't know if I completely buy that argument as a way of framing the horror genre, because yeah, you know, again, the Friday the 13th part four will be my, <laughs> will be my punching bag for this whole conversation. Uh- but I don't, I don't feel like that movie is trying to unsettle me as much as it's trying to scare me versus the shining, which seems only interested in unsettling me to a certain extent. Uh, so while there are some uh, interesting uses of, of quick flashes and cuts that, that are probably designed to, to create a bit of a jump scare, for the most part, it's just about creating a feeling that is unsettling. Yeah,
1: a sense of dread, a sense of dread. And I mean, all right, not. I don't wanna to spend too much time on <laughs> You know, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. While we're discussing Kubrick's *Shining*, but um, there is like the, the concept of the uncanny—the concept of like I am experiencing a world that is not as it should be—is um, uh, of course. I mean, that's a part. That's why uh, haunted houses have fun mirrors. You know that that shape your body in a strange way or you know you walk into a room and they've they've turned everything topsy-turvy so that the the fan is coming out of the floor and the couch is glued to the ceiling and all those things are like oh gosh this is not immediately scary as in someone with a knife trying to stab me but it is sort of terrifying in an uncanny way and i would say just on jason even just the hockey mask the, the the facelessness of that there's something kind of uncanny about that but 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 I, I think you're right in in that this movie is is not really going for the jump scares but yeah besides, but you're right it's it's more the the uh, the uncanny but at the same time you cannot deny that this is a horror movie i mean to the ba- it, and 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 kubrick you know he was thinking of as a horror movie i i remember uh reading um you know his driver wrote uh uh a a a biography a memoir about uh, working for Stanley Kubrick and he was talking about when this movie was in production uh, it was my favorite chapter of that book uh, and he was talking about Diane Johnson and Kubrick just sort of hanging around and giggling to each other as they figured out ways of scaring people <laughs> and like oh what would we do we could do this and this would be scary and this would be scary and, and you have a guy with an axe chasing his wife and kid you can't. That's you can't say that's not horror. That's
0: horror. I mean, okay. Here's the thing. This movie to me exists in the same space as The Exorcist, in the sense that, okay, I, you're right. I can't necessarily argue my way out of the fact that that this movie is lives in in that space in the the horror genre. Yes, yes. But in some ways, it, it's it's the exception that proves the rule <laughs> Such to why I don't like the genre. So,
1: so far we've had two exceptions Most... that prove the rule.
0: <laughs> yeah. Two out of how many horror films have been made. Uh, this year, much less in the history of cinema.
1: So I, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, this is a brilliant film and uh, and it's it's beautiful and it, it has so many of the aspects that I know you love about horror films. Now, in, in some ways, when we had that that list, of course, we let the way that the you know, the viewers <laughs> vote, uh, The Shining, uh, the, the Witch uh, and The Descent. And I think The Order was The Shining got the most, The Descent got the second, and uh, The Witch got the last. But um, this one I was like, okay, this would be fun, but I know I know, Russell's gonna like it. And, and then I know Russell's gonna say, so it's not really a horror movie,
0: <laughs> because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways, I stand by that statement. Uh, and this is what I mean. To me, the horror genre, is defined by Friday the 13th less than The Exorcist or The Shining in the sense that I feel like, you know, Freakin and Kubrick are towering figures in the history of cinema who in some ways were slumming it. Oh, my. <laughs> for,
1: for, uh, wow. Slumming it. First of all, wh- I, this is my favorite Kubrick film.
0: Uh, you know, I, I'll have to think about that. But it, I, you know, between this and two thousand one, right. his sci-fi, his
1: other genre film, correct? Yeah, uh, but maybe that doesn't count as sci-fi, <laughs> uh, Russell, because it's good.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, no, I wouldn't go that far. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying The Shining isn't a horror movie. I am conceding that it is a horror. Okay, movie. good. Good. Uh, it, uh, it's like, it's like if. Uh, if some Michelin rated restaurant made a donut for dessert, you'd still call it a donut, but it probably costs $35 and tastes unlike anything you've ever had before. Uh, It doesn't mean therefore all donuts are worth $35 and are served in Michelin rated restaurants.
1: Well, you're not sounding like a snob now. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Just wondering what you're going for. there.
0: (laughs) Well, if you've never had a $35 donut. I can, wouldn't understand I, it.
1: I, would, <laughs> I should probably never try it because then I would never be satisfied <laughs> with my 35 cent donut. Uh, but, you know, I, I this, this is a common thing, right? Uh, I mean, you know, as we've talked about before, even freaking was like the exorcist, it can't be a horror movie and it won an Academy award. Um, and sometimes I feel that way. It's like saying like, I think we need you just go ahead and have a broader definition of horror in that way of like, it'd be like if I said, Oh my gosh, I read that article about, uh, all Christians, because I read this article about Jerry farwell Jr. and what a, a you know awful person he is, and that's all Christians. And then you know you might go, oh, what about Mother Teresa or Thomas Merton? I'd go, no, no, no. You know, Mother Teresa wasn't really a Christian. <laughs> I mean, look look at all the good stuff she did. She's a thirty five dollar donut, is what she is. <laughs>
0: um, well, okay, yeah. If, I know, I know. This is like totally spurious argument, but I, I, I can't get away from the fact that I still feel as though, you know, if you think of, if, if I think about the, the filmmakers who are drawn to the genre and sort of stick with that genre and continue to work within that genre, someone like Wes Craven, for example, for whom I have a certain amount of respect as a sort of journeyman filmmaker who continued to put out obviously highly entertaining and highly successful films, but ultimately, was working within the tropes of that genre that I just don't connect with. And then I think of someone like Kubrick or someone like Friedkin who demonstrate that they can work in multiple genres and bring to whatever they're working, whether it's sci-fi or horror or drama or historical epic or whatever it is, can bring their particular and singular voice and vision to those projects. You know, bring it on. Christopher Nolan. Would love to see a horror movie from Christopher Nolan, if he wants to call it a horror movie. You know, would love to see um, more of the filmmakers that I appreciate try their hand at this genre and see what they can do. Because for the most part, I don't connect with the typical way, perhaps the way Stephen King would have liked this film to have been made in terms of hitting those tropes. Uh, it doesn't do it for me.
1: So what? What is it? Let, let, let's let's step away from the the, the judgment, uh, <laughs> and and um, let's talk about what you love about this movie. Because I my thinking is that perhaps you're blinded. This is my theory here M- that you're blinded to the things that are shining. <laughs> no, no pun intended. That was actually an accident. That are shining in things like. Uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, and even you know Friday the Thirteenth Part Four because they are so clearly uh, pop horror because it's so clearly a genre film and and they wear that on their sleeves that um, that it was a similar way when I try to introduce you to Spirited Away do you remember this
0: I do yes
1: I mean you know one of the greatest filmmakers ever in my opinion I remember like. You said you couldn't get past Spirited away because like you just couldn't get past the animation. like nah i I don't like those kind of movies. And for you, it was like, oh, this is just that's anime. I wonder if it's a little bit similar with some of these films uh, in in that kind of way. that that's my thinking. So I want like, what are the things that you love about the shining? because I bet they're also evident in these other movies that you've you've sadly missed
0: well, first, let me say, I have a deep respect for Spirited Away and for for all of his films. But you're right. Uh, it, in particular, that one, there was something about, I think in some ways, because it 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 plays in that same world of horror.
1: Oh, it's that's true. It does. That
0: that, that I didn't connect with it. So you're asking, what did I like about The Shining? Why yeah, yeah, does yeah. it stand out to me? Well, the first is this idea of, of Kubrick expecting or demanding a certain amount of patience from the viewer. Mm. Very slow burn of increasing creepiness and allowing, for example, Jack's unraveling to, to feel as though it's happening in real time, uh, mm-hmm. it, whereas, and, and I, I was, uh, I was killing time before, before we got, got on to the recording and I watched actually the trailer for Dr. Sleep. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's a trailer, so who knows, but it felt very much like, oh yeah, that looks like a pretty run of the mill sort of horror, film, it looks like it's, it's going to follow those beats pretty closely, and it's probably going to be a huge success, but it didn't have that same vibe, that same feel that I got from watching The Shining, where, where he's less interested, it seems, in, in ramping up the action and, and holding your attention, quote unquote, in a way that I think a lot of filmmakers think you have to in these kinds of films, but just sort of letting you sit in that creepy space, um, mm-hmm. I think is kind of brilliant. And then there's just the, the overall production design and the way he moves the camera. For example, the famous you know, scene of tracking the kid on his big wheel, doing the loops uh, around the hotel. Isn't that the, amazing? Hotel. And, and, and you, know, you put that in most movies, especially nowadays, people are like, well, you just wasted five minutes of my time just following this. Nothing happened. But, but what happens is it unsettles you, it draws you in, it makes you sort of sit in that sense of what it's like to be trapped in that hotel on a long winter, um, sort of going around and around in circles. The, the sound design of that, obviously I'm not the first to point this out, but uh, the alternating between the hardwood floor and the carpet and that staccato, but drawn out rhythm of like all that stuff has an effect on you as a viewer, even if you're just watching on your computer with headphones like I did this time. And I don't think a lot of filmmakers working today trust their own skill or the audience's attention span to take risks like that when they're putting together their films.
1: The, the, it's funny, you know, I, uh, I remember seeing in a documentary that they discovered that sound, that that was not intentional. They would set up the shot. And then as, as, as Danny was rolling around, the the sound they were like oh my gosh that sound that alternating between the the carpet and the hardwood floor is intense and they you know played it up based on that it, it's interesting what you talk about the the unraveling of Jack because Stephen King one, one of Stephen King's problems with this is the fact that Jack seems crazy right from the start because of Jack Nicholson's performance mm-hmm. that uh, basically you see him in the car when he's like see honey He learned about it from television, you know, when they're driving up. He's like, oh, we got it. He's crazy. He's crazy. He doesn't go. He just he goes from a little crazy to really, really crazy. Uh, And for Stephen King, Stephen King was like, that's not that's not the character I wrote. I have have a character who is trying his damnedest to be a good person and uh, and, you know, has a a more intense fall. Uh, uh, It goes he, he goes from really sane to really crazy. And uh, And felt there was that, that that was one of the things that King didn't like about it. That's why he felt there was no motor.
0: yeah, that's that's interesting because and 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 this is I guess something we come back to a lot is thinking about or reassessing some of these movies in terms of well who's the who's the movie about? Well, yeah and, and and watching it this time, I don't know when the last time I saw it, but watching it this time, it it really felt like Danny's movie in a way. Yeah. I don't think I fully appreciated it in the past. Therefore, Jack's story becomes context for Danny's story, and I don't mind, you know, King's criticism, because it it creates this sense of tension from the beginning for Danny and his safety, and him having this this power. You know, it it seems like they're trying to lean into the idea that that Tony, the imaginary friend or is he imaginary, it is meant to be kind of creepy, like, oh, he's possessed, or he's gonna be like uh, you know, Damien or, or some sort of villain. But for this time around, especially because of, of his sort of friendship with Scatman, it, 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 didn't, it, it felt more from the beginning like, this is a gift, this kid is special, he's our hero. So as, as Jack is as being Jack, and I mean both the character and the actor, it, all that did was refocus my attention on, on the kid.
1: Yeah. Well, that's an interesting, yeah. I mean, I think, okay, I, I guess, I mean, I, I, I get that. I, I I love it too. Um, I think, uh, you know, his his performance is amazing. And you, you've probably heard the stories about how Kubrick would just basically do take after take after take. And Jack Nicholson would just get to the point where he would just be doing these over the top, <laughs> to, you know, uh, choices, like just crazy, just go, going out there, you know, in, in a way that as a as a trained actor, he'd be like, oh, I I wouldn't go that, you know, I'd hold back. But that Kubrick was just, Loving that. Those are the ones that Kubrick were putting in. Like these outrageous takes. And and in a way, I would say Kubrick's and Jack you know, the, the performance he gets out of Jack Nicholson does something that we talked about with Carpenter, where you're you're pushing things to such an extreme that they're they're right at the border of horror and humor. That that you know, there's something very comical in Jack Nicholson's madness, uh and his manic stylings uh, that really
0: works yeah you know it's interesting you say that because my my gut reaction to that is but in the thing it felt unintentionally funny and in the shining it feels intense like the moments that feel funny feel intentionally funny like i don't feel like it's a it's a problem i feel like it's a strength whereas in the thing i often felt like you don't know what tone you want
1: mm. I don't, I, I'm trying to remember the, 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 the thing. Oh, you mean the, the slimy puppets? Your problem with the slimy puppets? Well, or Kurt thing?
0: Russell's performance. Because uh, oh. he's got, and we talked about this, he's got a little bit of the Jack Burton swagger, but there's yes. no sense of camp. Like, they don't seem to embrace that. No, keeps, thank God. Thank mind, God they didn't. He keeps poking its head uh, up in a way that Carpenter almost can't help himself. Whereas with Kubrick, it feels when, when we are laughing, it's an unsettling laugh, but it feels like we're, we're never at a loss for what Kubrick's trying to do.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing though. I, I, I think we are at at a loss for what Kubrick's trying to do. And what, what I mean by that is like I, I the reason I love this movie uh is because it, it's got a, a, a dreamlike quality, uh and a, a nightmarish type quality. And 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 that, that sense of the uncanny. You know, there was that bizarre documentary uh that was done talking about um this this film and people finding all these secret messages in it. Did you ever see that one?
0: I I, I remember it. it's called Rune Two Three Seven, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I can't and remember if I actually saw it or not.
1: It's it's pretty. I mean, you know, it's 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 fine. But it, one of the beautiful things is it not only like does it show that almost any piece of art can be interpreted in so many strange ways, but that Kubrick has all this stuff in there that uh, I didn't catch, and and that the all these people did. Like uh, you know, of course. A lot of like, a lot of is like, oh, this is all evidence that Kubrick actually did film the fake moon yes. landing. I do
0: remember this because of the kid's sweater, the Apollo the kids 11 sweater, sweater. Being, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But also this stuff about the uh, the geography of the Overlook that for example, there's a the big window in the general manager's office during his interview. And this one writer thinker on this uh, documentary was sort of implying like, listen, this, that shouldn't be there. If you look at the way that the hotel is organized and the way Jack Torrance walks through it, there shouldn't be a window there. That should be a wall. There's no way you can have a window to the outside in that spot. Uh, it just, it's just too strange. And that's not an accident. That's, you know, this, that's just part of the, the many things that make this an uncanny, unbelievable world or, or off-putting world. And I think you're right. I think it is Danny's movie. I mean, for me, the scariest part of the whole movie is the moment when Danny goes upstairs to get something uh, out of the uh, out of the room. He's watching TV with his mom downstairs. A TV, by the way, that does not have a plug. It's not plugged into anything. Hmm? uncanny um uh the when he goes up into the room and his dad's meant to be sleeping but instead his dad's just sitting there in bed and you have this great shot where you kind of see the reflection of jack in a mirror same as the same time that you're looking at danny and he says come and sits on his lap
0: right yeah
1: yeah oh my gosh that scene gives me the creeps oh it's so <laughs>
0: well you know it's interesting obviously because i've seen it probably a few times I can, uh, weirdly, you know, Ready Player One, um, uh, the film, uh, not the book, incorporates The Shining into the narrative, right? Yes. And it was a part of me when I was watching Ready Player One that I thought, oh, well, this is this is risky because this mm-hmm. is a, a, a sort of PG Spielberg movie, and and they're 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 drawing us into this world that is, you know, definitely rated R kind of world and kind of scary. And the anticipation of that sort of collision of Spielberg family entertainment and Kubrick horror, uh, may be uh, uneasy watching Ready Player One in a way.
1: No, I'm with you. I I actually had a really weird experience watching that sequence as well. Uh, Part of it was just a little bit like, I. I don't know I don't know if I want I don't know if I want my shining in this. Uh, which wasn't anything against Ready Player 1. I mean I think I think what it did for me is a little bit is um uh, uh, the Ready Player 1 was super fun and you had all these things from the 80s that were you know IP from the 80s. So it, there was a nostalgia for for brands. And when the shiny got in there it felt like the shiny was became a brand. You know, like a Twinkie reference or something like that, and I was like, No, I don't. Don't do that. You know, like, uh, I don't. Don't don't mess with that. That nightmare.
0: Well, and I, if I'm not mistaken, in the book it was War Games.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Which which seems much more appropriate given that context. But the reason I bring that up is watching The Shining now. At no point was I scared or or, or even actually unsettled, and I'm starting to wonder if it's even possible for me. In the context of these conversations we're having, huh. movies to really affect me in the way that they're supposed to. And it may just be like a fatal flaw in the fact that I'm watching them now with this critical eye, thinking as I'm watching about how I'm gonna talk about this, it automatically creates a certain amount of critical distance. And then I'm looking at, you know, the scene which I recall being super unsettling, you know, when the woman, you know turns into the rotting corpse, laughing older woman, which was the part in Ready Player One that, that made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. In this film, I felt nothing. I, I felt this detached, you know, sort of judgment in the neutral sense of, oh, interesting how he's playing with, uh, you know, sexual desire and, and the horror of, you know, a decomposing woman's body and what is that saying? Like, I, I, that, my brain was engaged in a way that my gut wasn't. And I guess I'm saying I wonder if this podcast is ruining movies for me. <laughs> no, because, no, because I'm not able to be affected by like like Friday the 13th uh, or or Nightmare on Elm Street movies that I remember scaring me now uh, seem tame and neutered in a way when I watch them again.
1: Wow, um, is it the movie that's been neutered?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh well, here. <laughs> oh. The podcast, I'll come clean. Um, no, I, and I could be wrong. Like, honestly, there was a little part of me that, that was a little afraid. W- the descent would win. And mm-hmm. I would have to watch a, a more sort of modern horror movie that because of the evolution of cinematic language and the way that, that most of the films we've watched so far have come from an earlier time that played with uh, filmmaking style and techniques that have become old hat by now. Yeah, really confronting a modern horror movie, I might actually have to get scared <laughs> in a way that I'm not, that I don't want to be. Which is my main complaint about horror movies is that it does things that I don't want them to do to me. Uh, oh, it, wait, yeah,
1: so, you don't want to be scared? No, why would I want that? But that's that's exactly what I want. I, <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> You
0: don't want to be scared? no, I don't like that feeling. I don't like that feeling,
1: whoa, okay. but but like you you'll watch a a, a disturbingly sad film,
0: oh, for sure. And I don't mind being unsettled. I yeah. like when a movie can make me unsettled. yeah, and i and I will say, you know The Exorcist and the Shining Both, despite the fact that watching them for this podcast, I was not as unsettled as I had been in the past when I was just, you know, consuming it as a viewer without right. thinking about thinking about it. But but a, a lot of my favorite filmmakers are my favorite filmmakers because their ability to unsettle me, uh, as I've said before. What I don't like is that feeling of oh, something's going to jump out, something's going to like make me jump, and it, it feels abusive.
1: Oh yeah, so. oh, yeah, like you're as if you're like you're you're sitting across the table having dinner where somebody keeps poking your face.
0: Yeah yeah, I don't like that feeling. I don't <laughs> like that feeling.
1: This is fascinating. I this oh, okay. I mean, what you're saying, I mean, I there was a, a book that came out some years ago that was How to Read a Novel Like a Professor, and I remember being like terrified of that book. I'm like, well, don't don't anybody pick up that book you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to read a novel like a professor um because of course exactly that detachment you're talking about where you're you're suddenly dissecting and taking apart and you're you know you're cutting open the songbird to find out how it sings and and of course that ends the song and 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 you teaching film and you know I I also think a lot about film that's definitely a danger uh, of the profession, but but that's a really fascinating thing. Cause like The Descent is a very scary film, um, and uh, and it's I think I think you will be scared watching it, especially because I'm gonna assign you to watch it in the woods alone, in the middle of the <laughs> night. I be in a cave. Yes. Yeah. You will be by the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that's a that's a really interesting that's a really interesting idea thought yeah
0: well and i will say too that uh, and we should talk about you know you know scenes we like the best and scenes maybe not so much and this is a difficult one uh, not unlike the exorcist because there's so much i do like about this movie yeah and i won't even go so far as to say i liked everything except the scary bits or the intentionally scary bits because for example that scene of the sort of decomposing uh, old woman is you know it's it's doing a lot of interesting things and and as grotesque as it is it's interesting and the the scenes of him in the bar uh, all of them are fascinating mostly because of nicholson's performance and the use yeah. of the camera and the and the breaking the axis and all that sort of stuff i really enjoyed the one moment that i think is probably one of the most calculated jump scare kind of moments is one of the last shots in the movie and that's jack nicholson frozen to death and <laughs> Like most times watching it, and this time was no different. I was like, "No, oh, that's kind of corny. That that shot isn't. I didn't need that." Uh,
1: <laughs> you didn't like that shot?
0: I know. It just felt. It just felt. Wah wah. He's <laughs> look at Jack Nicholson frozen. <laughs> Did you? Do, are you
1: scared at the last shot when it goes to the July Fourth picture of the July Fourth?
0: Well, you, I, again, you know, it's because it's not a surprise anymore uh it it it, it no because i i knew it was coming an another moment and why don't we just go ahead and and this will be my official my favorite the scene i like the best and that is the all work and no play make jack a doll boy yeah you know I, I have some sense of a of a sense memory of that being like a oh shit moment and it wasn't this time because of i you know i knew it was coming it, so much so that that earlier on, when you hear him typing, I could hear the ah. um, match, all work and no play, make Jack a dull boy. Like, you could tell Jack Nicholson was typing the, those sentences uh, in those scenes, or at least it sounded like that to me. Yeah. So, you know, it didn't scare me, but it's still, to me, a kind of genius moment. One of the most unsettling uh, and sort of terrifying moments in the film, at least in a kind of uh, objective, detached way, it, it was terrifying. Uh, and probably because as a writer, <laughs> it's like, it's like often what it feels like uh, when I'm working is, you know, I've lost my mind, I'm just typing the same sentence over and over again. So there's like an existential terror. Yes. As much as a practical terror for Shelley Duval's character. Yeah. So it's, it's, my favorite scene, but also had no power over me this time watching it.
1: Oh, that's okay. That's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking this conversation has been really uh, enlightening for me, partially because it's also key- keying on to what I love about The Shining, which I, I remember at the beginning, I was like, I don't know what I love about it. And I think actually this conversation has given me some light of part of what I do love about it and and I think it's really interesting for you and I both as filmmakers as directors but also filmmakers as, as writers and and as writers outside of film as well um the book Stephen King's uh uh The Shining which I read years after seeing the movie and being a huge fan of the movie is is filled with a a um, all the images, there's not the maze, but so many of the other images are, are right out of the book. The woman in the bathtub, uh, excellent party, a wonderful party, isn't it? You know, some of the strange imagery that Shelley Duvall sees as she's running around in, in the climax of the film. All these different things are there, the, the two little girls. Um, what's, what's fascinating is we understand who they are in the book. Like King tells us, I know the story of the woman in the bathtub. And it's scary to hear her story. And I know the story about the people that Shelley Duvall sees when she's running around. Uh, Kubrick gave us the images and he does not explain them. Of course, we know the two little girls were Grady, you know, the the other uh, caretaker's kids. But even that's a little weird and set up because when, when you know, Jack meets Grady as the waiter... In the bar, it's a different time era than the 1970 night when Grady was meant to have done the right. killing of his family. So even, like even that sort of offputting. But there's these images that we see that we don't quite get an explanation for. That just these beautiful nightmarish images it's it's almost as if the novel the shining had a fever dream and that dream was the film <laughs> yeah and, and and maybe that's the job maybe that's the job of a filmmaker and and maybe this is what you're talking about too is like perhaps in, these days we 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 ask for everything to be explained to us even if we don't really desire that but that that impatience you're talking about um that we're like oh no no i tell me who that who's my hero uh, what, what's happening? Why am I seeing that image? Uh, I, I want it explained in some way. Maybe, maybe we we have a we we're, we're losing our taste, or maybe we didn't have it. It's not like The Shining was a hit. Maybe maybe we're, we we're losing a little bit of that desire or that uh, that ability to accept what cannot be explained.
0: Maybe so. Maybe so. Though though I think it it really it depends on on who you talk to and and you know, what you're coming to cinema for. I also think that cinema has changed, that, that just the vagaries of the industry do not necessarily provide for the kind of capital investment in more contemplative cinema in a way, uh, partly because of the rise of streaming and short form content. And I, again, I don't wanna sound like the old man, get off my lawn, kids today don't have attention spans. But I do think that that we have lost in a global way patience for what cinema can do. And it's been relegated to European filmmakers for the most part. Or or Mexican filmmakers. Roma
1: had a lot of patience.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Um, or, or at least people working outside of the Hollywood ecosystem uh, just doesn't don't have uh, patience for for that kind of of filmmaking, but I don't think it's necessarily because the appetite isn't there or that audiences won't respond to that kind of cinema if given the chance, you know, Roma, whether or not it made a bunch of money, um, you know, certainly embraced the new uh, way of consuming media by being on Netflix. It certainly you know, seemed to make a lot of people happy watching it that it yeah. did with audiences. Uh, and and I, I think one of the things I've been, thinking a lot about in the last few months, partly because I do teach film, is maybe letting go a little bit of my love. Well, maybe not letting go of my love, but my emphasis on that closed system of feature films, the hour and a half to two hour, beginning, middle, and end, and recognizing that our cinematic language still applies to long form content, series content, short form videos, like all those things went on well, still use the same approach to framing and camera movement and storytelling. And I need to expand sort of my definition in a way of cinema as the catch all of, you know, motion pictures and, and maybe see The Shining and The Exorcist and, and a lot of other movies that I love as part of an era that we are moving out of. And that kind of breaks my heart but I want to be open to what is coming and what is next.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, of course, you know, Chaplin was not happy that sound was coming into film. Sure. Uh, Hitchcock. Hitchcock was was like, oh, that was a horrible thing for film. You know, we it had become a perfect visual medium. And then sound came in and I was like, oh, boy. And uh, but of course, Hitchcock did a very good job of like, okay, this is this is where film is going. And it's like, oh, we've lost. You know, we've lost something. We're moving out of that era, and 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 maybe that's true. I mean, you know, even when uh, when my film *Mercy Black* was picked up by Netflix, I was still in the editing, and I I took my credit sequence, which was a beautifully designed credit sequence by a really talented artist, and I put it at the end, as opposed to basically right near the beginning, right after the first few images of the film, uh, because exactly what you're talking about. I was like, oh gosh, yeah, on streaming, people click over. They'll leave. I'm I'm a little bored. This movie hasn't hooked me. And I've got a billion different options uh, surrounding me. And uh, and as opposed to, I've paid my $10 I'm sitting in this theater, (laughs) they've got me. Um, And I'll I'll sit through um, a a beautiful helicopter shot of a a, a VW going through the mountains. So yeah, I I think you're right that the things that there definitely is some change coming. But I think probably what you, you'll find, I mean, there is a lot of that patience and maybe that cinematic patience is being rewarded in the long-form series. Uh, you, you, you take um, a show, like even like Breaking Bad as an example, or, or in the horror genre, The Terror, um, and there is some beautiful... Patience that is being done. It's just that they're taking that story, and as opposed to making a three-hour movie, they're making, of course, a twelve-hour movie
0: hmm. in in thirty-minute to hour-long chunks. Yes, <laughs> which which does I think change things. I think Mindhunter is another one that comes to mind that yeah. that has a pace to it that I would love to see as a twelve-hour film where I had to sit in theater and watch it. <laughs> and 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 I do think we're losing something in that process, because I do think nowadays if you spend $10 and go sit yourself in a theater, it's probably going to be for the latest Fast and Furious or Marvel movie yeah. that is anything but patient in terms of how it is carrying you along on a journey. And and now it's about, you know, you're gonna find those little gems on Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO where you aren't necessarily glued to a seat in a dark room with a bunch of other people uh, and that there is a there is a sense of, of mourning that loss in a way, I think, for me.
1: That's interesting. I, I, I wonder where I am on all that because I I see the benefits of both because I, of course, I love The Shining, but I, I also love Friday the 13th part four. I, I love I love films that also, gosh, they grab you right at the beginning. Cheap thrills comes to mind, just grabs you at the start and it's just going to it's going to take you the whole way. It's not going to let go of you. And that's a, a fun ride. It, I, I hope there's room for both. By the way, if you're in Austin, Texas, going to Fantastic Fest, we're going to be there. Uh, we're going to be presenting a live recording of the horror. Uh,
0: are you excited about that, uh, I Well, it's hard to say. Uh, I can't say it's going to be a friendly room for me. but uh, I'm, People hate I am, you. People... I, I am prepared uh, to receive the Gallagher treatment and have produce <laughs> thrown at me.
1: Yes, it, well, Gallagher is like watermelons. You're gonna have you're you're, you're
0: inviting people to throw watermelons at you. <laughs> uh, do we have a sense of like what what you're gonna subject me to?
1: Yes. Okay. So I try to think of a film, and actually, I think, funny enough, I think this comes off The Shining in a beautiful way. Another film that is filled with the uncanny. Another film that. Perhaps, if there were a novel would make a lot more sense. but another film that is no way feels in no way feels shackled by reason or logic or plot. sense. Uh, we are going to be watching Phantasm.
0: I, I have no idea what that is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really?
0: I can I can, all I, all I can think of is like the porn version of that is super easy to title. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it is already the porn version. I don't know. Do you, you don't know who the tall man is, or you never heard. Boy, you nothing. You get, I got nothing.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, I think um, you are you are in for a treat.
0: Thirty five dollar donut kind of treat. Mm, no, this
1: is not. <laughs> This is not The Exorcist or The Shining. I'm afraid it's 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 its own ride. But you know, it's funny enough. It is one of those films, and this is I think I kind of a little why it's really interesting. It is one of these films that uh in in the horror genre world, like is is adored. Um, it was recently I, I actually played a Fantastic Fest. I I believe last year or the year before a um a uh a redone print of it. A, re, a new print of it. Yeah, I think you're really gonna.
0: Uh, Okay, if you say so. And that's the horror. Owen, where can we find you out there in the world?
1: Well, I'm on Facebook uh, and also on Twitter at Owen, O W E N underscore Edgerton, E G E R T O N. How about you, Russell? Where can we find you? And you can find me at Russell Sharman.
0: That's our show for this week. See you all in Austin. Wait,
1: Russell, what what if people just want to find you and, like, really just talk to you face to face? Like, horror fans. What about (laughs) if they want to, like, meet you and share their thoughts?
0: Uh, I'm somewhere in the Dakotas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll see you all next week in Austin. Thanks so much, Owen. Thanks, Russell.